It's Wednesday, December the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Just before we start today, a last reminder about our final live event of the year. It is happening tomorrow, that's Thursday, December the 10th at 7pm, and I'm going to be joined by Fintan O'Toole, Jennifer Bray, Jennifer O'Connell and Pat Leahy to discuss the events of 2020, and I suppose the real challenge for us is going to be fitting everything in. If you would like to join us, just go to the show page for this podcast, where you can find a link to get your tickets. The price for those tickets is 20 euro or 10 euro for Irish Times subscribers. And you can also find that link pinned to the top of my own Twitter feed at hlinehan. Uh, and we do actually have 10 free tickets to give away today to the first 10 people who email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. So do get typing. Now, just to say also that we are not ignoring Brexit and it, we're going to be back in your feed for any major breaking developments in the down to the wire process, which is continuing this week. But before we get to the meat of today's discussion and today's podcast, which is on a different subject. Uh, Pat Leahy, our political editor, is with us. And Pat, maybe you could just give us a rundown of where we are right now on the Wednesday morning. Yeah, Hugh. Well, most people will be aware that this evening uh, Boris Johnson is travelling to Brussels. He's going to have dinner with uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. This won't be a a negotiation, but uh, it will hardly be an entirely social occasion either. Um, and really, unless there is some movement by one or both parties uh, from the positions that they have held uh, up up until now, then we will be headed for uh, a no deal. So both leaders have been briefed by their negotiating teams as to the state of play. Um, Both sides are still divided principally on level playing field uh, issues. There's also there's also uh, quite a chasm between them on fisheries, though this sense of people who I've been speaking to who are briefed in, in significant depth on the progress of the negotiations is that fisheries uh, is probably doable uh, with some sort of compromise, but level playing field issues are, uh, are, are, are much more difficult. And as I say, I don't see that that chasm will be uh, uh, will will be crossed unless there is some movement by the political principles and that's why it's the political decision makers that are meeting tonight rather than the negotiators who uh, who can only you know go so far go as far as they are allowed by the political principles the feeling in Dublin briefly is pretty pessimistic I spoke to the Taoiseach last night he confessed himself to be on the pessimistic side elsewhere yesterday he said that a deal was, uh, you know, the prospects for a deal were about 50-50. Um, that's, that's certainly the most you could say for it. There was agreement yesterday between uh, British negotiators and, uh, and European Union negotiators on the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Though there is a suspicion in Dublin that this is to sort of clear the decks with the, uh, with the incoming Biden administration so, uh, so that the Biden administration can't object to or won't object to uh, a free trade deal that doesn't have implications for the North. It's sort of boxing off the uh, the North because, as we know, Washington had been warning about the implications for a free trade deal with between the US and UK uh, if, the, uh, if there was any backsliding on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's where we stand um, at the moment. Nothing decided yet, Hugh, but certainly, and I know we've said this on numerous occasions, but today and more particularly this evening is a really crucial point 
we are reaching the stage where decisive decisions will have to be made tonight. Tomorrow, EU leaders meet in Brussels for uh, a two-day summit. My sense is that really by the end of that summit and certainly uh, into uh, into the weekend, we will know whether we are headed for a no deal uh, on the 1st of January. But um, that is, at, at, at least as Atishik says, at least a 50-50 uh, likelihood at the moment, possibly a bit more than that. Okay, and and like the famed Skibreen Eagle, we will be keeping our eye on this podcast on developments in Brussels over the next 24 hours or so. But we did want to turn our attention today to what some believe is becoming the new underlying dynamic of Irish politics. Uh, Recent months, we've seen increasingly fractious exchanges between Sinn Féin and Fine Gael on on issues including Tánis Dilea Varadkar's leaking of information about confidential negotiations with the medical profession and Justice Minister Helen McEntee's appointment of Seamus Wolfe to the Supreme Court, to the more recent controversy over the social media utterances of Sinn Féin's chair of the Public Accounts Committee, Brian Stanley. But if we look beyond those particular issues, it does seem increasingly clear to some commentators that what they represent is the new binary of Irish politics in the form of those two parties, something that's been reflected to some extent in recent opinion polls as well. To discuss this, I am joined by Theresa Reedy, a political scientist at University College Cork, and Pat is still with us as well. And actually, Pat, I'm going to go to you first, if you don't mind, uh, because you laid out the thesis for this. Maybe you could explain what it is you're describing in in a recent column. Yeah, I've written about this um a couple of times Hugh as as indeed have uh, have other people and um you know I suppose we're at the end of the year so we all look back and see what uh, you know see what was significant what wasn't over the course of the year. I think this is the one of the things that we will remember 2020 for this realignment of the political landscape that took place at the general election. And that I think a general election and subsequently uh, I, I suppose and that revolves uh, around a couple of things. One of them is the rise of Sinn Féin. Now, while, you know, Fianna Fáil remains, I suppose it's good to remind ourselves from time to time, the uh, the, the largest party in uh, in the Dáil and, and retains the leadership of the government. Um, in a way, I think our political debate is being reoriented around the twin poles of Sinn Féin on the one hand, which now leads the opposition and a look at uh, opinion polls uh, would bear out uh, the, the the suspicion that their rise was not confined to the seats that they won in the general election. If there was a general election tomorrow that we know there's not going to be, Sinn Féin would gain a hatful uh, of uh, of extra seats. But the 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 other thing, and this came subsequent to the general election, which I suppose you know bolsters this idea of a reformed uh, or a recast political landscape, is the resuscitation in Fine Gael since that general election, largely through the party's management in government of the first phase of the pandemic. Fine Gael had a terrible general election, something which hasn't really been interrogated in great detail by that party. Presumably, in part because uh, the leadership would be faced with all sorts of uncomfortable questions, not least the one about this whole project of the Leo Varadkar project as a young leader for a young country, all that sort of stuff, which didn't really play uh, productively for that party 
in the uh, in the general election. But notwithstanding that poor general election result, the party has been resuscitated. And although it is, uh, it doesn't hold the leadership of uh, of the government now. I think we can see in the way that the government opposition dynamic has developed since the formation of this uh, of this government that our our political debate is increasingly defined by these two poles of Sinn Féin on the one hand and uh, and Fianna Gael on the other with Fianna Fáil almost playing a supporting role uh, to to Fianna Gael and I think that that is something that will be with us for uh for for some time I think that the the electoral strength uh, of Fine Gael from its natural constituency will endure. Sinn Féin is clearly on the rise. Uh, polls bearing this out, just as they are with the uh, with 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 Fine Gael's strength, and that squeezes Fianna Fáil. Uh, and uh, and I think that has been one of the most, I think, that reorientation away from a situation which we once had, and we've discussed it on this, uh, on, on, on the podcast before, where for much of the political history of the independent state, the most important division in our politics was the old civil war one between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Now we can say definitively that that is no longer the case. The biggest dividing line is between, uh, uh, is, is between Fianna Gael on, and its allies on one side, and Sinn Féin and its allies on the other. Theresa, do you buy this thesis? I mean, a lot of people said at the in the aftermath of the election earlier this year was that the old two-party hegemony was finally broken, that we now had three large parties and a multiplicity of, of, of smaller groupings as well. But if this thesis is true, it might mean that that election was really just a, uh, a transitionary phase to the new shape of Irish politics. What do you make of it? I mean, I think... That 2011 was the election which fractured the um, which fractured the system, and what we've been seeing since is the fallout from that. And what's not yet clear is where we have settled into as uh, as a party system. I don't think we have three large parties. I think we have three medium sized parties, and two of those parties have quite clear identities that connect with their uh, support base. Now, interestingly, they're actually the second and third largest parties at the moment. Uh, Fine Gael has a, a clear support on the centre-right, a clear set of policies, and it connects with its its voters, albeit performs very poorly in elections. Sinn Féin has a left-leaning, uh, left-leaning support. It also attracts a lot of support an anti-system, anti-elite support. Um, and in that sense, it, it's also directly in, in contrast to Fine Gael's quite pro-system, um, you know, status quo uh, type support. And then sitting probably closer to, to Fine Gael in, in some ways in terms of its support for the system, perhaps closer to Sinn Féin in terms of its uh, uh, economic ideologies, sit Fianna Fáil. But Fianna Fáil's identity has been squeezed. And, and what's very interesting in some of the data that we got in, in the post election study is that these identities are very clear and, and people have reactions to uh, to Fine Gael and to Sinn Féin. They either like them or they really dislike them in, in both cases. But uh, Fianna Fáil is, is really not um, engaging or, or generating a connection with its voters. Um, and whether it's the leader of Fianna Fáil or the uh, actual party itself, 
is the re- reaction of, uh, you know, of, of voters. Now, on one level, that's a good thing to Fianna Fáil, because if we go back to the data from 2011, there was a visceral hatred of, of Fianna Fáil tied directly to the collapse in, in support. So they've certainly moved beyond that, which was probably a very necessary thing for the party. But but they remain at a kind of a crossroads in, in terms of developing um, or, or reconnecting with their voters in, in a substantial way, um, either, you know, in person, personality terms or in policy terms around the, the parties. So I think you have you have the contours of a new party competition structure coming into to play. And, and it's certainly anchored by uh, Sinn Féin on one side and, and Fianna Gael on, on the other side. But we've seen a lot of fluctuation at the last couple of elections. Um, so I'd be a little bit hesitant about saying that it will definitely continue in, in this way. I think that we're in a very unusual kind of situation at the moment due to the pandemic. And, um, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of policy consensus among all the main political parties around aspects of the pandemic. So the normal kind of politics of government and opposition, whilst it's re-emerged probably since the summer, it's still more muted than it would usually uh, would usually be. So we'll have to see how that how that goes. But so far, the the, the opinion polls seem to be supporting this continuing idea of a kind of a, an emerging left and right structure to to, to politics a hundred years after pretty much every other European country developed this structure. Indeed, and at a time when many of them are moving on from it onto, onto further uncharted territory. Can I ask you one, one, one thing about this, um, Theresa? This new bipolar reality that emerges, if it emerges, will obviously be very different. As you said, it will be against a, a more fragmented backdrop. It won't be like the old system, which existed for a lot of the history of the state with two and a half parties, Labour, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, and maybe a, a couple of other things. Here you've got, you know, the, the Sinn Féin and Fine Gael can expect to get maybe somewhere around 60%, slightly more uh, between them if they have a good election at the next election. That still leaves a lot of contestation. But where you don't have contestation, I'm presuming, and tell me if I'm wrong, is between Fine Gael and Sinn Féin for the same voters. They uh, they may be picking across like carrion birds across the, the corpse of Fianna Fáil, uh, but they're not actually... I, I don't anticipate seeing a, the equivalent of, you know, Obama-Trump voters, which you had in the United States. I don't see a lot of that likely to happen in Irish politics. Am I wrong? No, I mean, that's that's pretty well supported by the, the data from the exit poll and it's in um, the Howard Ireland voter book. Sinn Féin is doing very well amongst uh, working class voters. Um, what was interesting about the 2020 election is it began to do much better amongst kind of working class voters outside of Dublin. And that actually contributed to its its big uh, bounce. Um, whereas Fine Gael does quite well amongst what we might call AB voters and certainly middle class, particularly urban middle class voters and, and it has strength um, in pockets of rural areas around the around the country as well. So, th- so the, they're drawing their support from quite distinct bases. Um, but I think an important thing to note about the support base for, for all of the political parties in Ireland is that voters aren't very loyal to Irish political parties. And, you know, most party systems are built on the basis that there are people who have a strong and enduring connection to political parties. So they they support one political party over most of their lifetime, and they always vote for that political party, except in very unusual circumstances. That kind of party affiliation or party attachment in Ireland has really collapsed in the last number of years. And we see that in relation to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, that kind of traditional 
traditional 30 to 40 percent of voters that they could nearly always rely on to vote for them have just eroded away slowly and then in quite large chunks um, in, say, 2011 for, for Fianna Fáil. And Sinn Féin uh, has also got a fairly small core support base. At the 2020 election, it made a big leap forward. So it, it attracted a lot of these voters, but these are new voters. And the big question is whether these are going to become permanent supporters of the party or whether they were simply lending their votes uh, to Sinn Féin for that time and that they may go on to some of the other small left parties in the system or they may go to, um, you know, uh, back to, to, to Fianna Fáil. So that we've had some very unsettling or, or very um, volatile elections. And, and that kind of stable support base that used to keep Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in their kind of first and second positions in the party system, that has collapsed. But it's not yet clear whether Sinn Féin is going to be able to actually attract those voters and keep them in an enduring way, which is, is crucial if we're going to see the kind of um, kind of left-right Sinn Féin, Fine Gael type competition into the future on a kind of a semi-permanent basis. They need to, to build that kind of long-term semi-permanent connection to the voters. Yeah, I want to come to that, that question of this larger Sinn Féin coalition and the tensions that might exist within it over the next few years. But just to come back to something that, that you said, Pat, which I think is important and has been under-discussed, which is Fine Gael's rotten performance in the election earlier this year, uh, which, you know, followed on from a pretty rotten performance in 2016 as well, that the, the party's parliamentary representation has collapsed, might be a bit too strong, but has certainly shrunk pretty pretty dramatically. And even though it's it's performing fairly well in the polls, in the, as you say, because of its its performance during the its perceived performance during the pandemic, there must be a fear in Fine Gael that those those poll numbers are relatively temporary. And as happened in twenty sixteen and in twenty twenty, when push comes to shove, it's not going to perform or it's going to you know, underperform again when it comes to a general election. To be honest, Hugh, I, I, I'm not sure that there is that widespread fear in Fine Gael. but there should be uh, because, as you say, they've now had two general elections in which they have underperformed expectations. And more importantly, they've underperformed polls that, uh, you know, the, the polling trends for uh, the, the the bulk of the period before the general election. And that is something that hasn't really been the subject of any self-examination uh, within, uh, within Fine Gael. And I suppose the question you know, the, the the question remains as to whether this was the product of a bad campaign or of a weakened uh, organisation. I suspect that the truth lies somewhere between uh, uh, be, between the two of them. Um, just on one of the, the points that uh, Theresa rightly made there, I think, which is about the volatility of the uh, of, of the current system. And, you know, we're talking about a realignment of the political landscape. But and, you know, that is, you know, that is what we see uh, in front of us. But I think it would be foolish. And while you can't find anybody in Leinster House at the moment who will tell you anything other than Sinn Féin are going to lead the next government and uh, and Fine Gael will be the largest party of, uh, of 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 opposition by some distance. You know that event may be four years away, maybe four and a half years away. And uh, you know, given the scale of change that we have witnessed and the scale of volatility in uh, the last uh, the last three general elections, uh, I think it would be foolish to assume that things are set in stone. 
uh, this far in advance of, uh, of the next general election. That having been said, the weaknesses that we see in Fianna Fáil is in a sense generational. You see, it's a it, it's difficulty in appealing to younger voters, the dangerously skewed nature of the demographic profile of Fianna Fáil voters now, which is not something that is particular to uh, to this general election. And I think, you know, what we're looking at is the inevitable gravity of these two polls uh, asserting themselves. But how that plays out in a general election campaign where we might see, you know, extreme swings to uh, to one party or another, as we did with Sinn Féin in the last general election. I mean, people forget, and it's something that um, that we, we we write about in the, the the forthcoming book, How Ireland Voted, that Theresa mentioned earlier, is that uh, you know a week before the general election was called, Sinn Féin was getting rid of t- people off election tickets because it thought it was running too many candidates. And that was based not just in its polling weakness in the run-up to the general election campaign, but to uh, but from the elections last year, the local and European elections uh, last year, which, uh, which saw such great difficulty for Sinn Féin and a collapse in the Sinn Féin vote compared to... Uh, to, to previous local and European elections. So all of which is rather long-winded way of, uh, of saying that there is still extreme volatility bedded into the Irish system now. That perhaps is, you know, compared to other compared to other political systems is perhaps now its defining characteristic, which in turn, I think, makes it very difficult to make short-term predictions uh, about our politics, not to mind long-term ones. Although... Bipolarity does advantage Fine Gael to some extent, doesn't it, Theresa? If you end up, you know, with with some form of a of a of a binary choice, and one side is Sinn Fein and Fine Gael can represent it itself as being the standard bearer of the other side, that might go to you know to mitigate some of the challenges which it has faced in the last couple of elections. I mean, I think what it does give Fine Gael is is a clarity of position from which it's competing. Um, Fine Gael is, is competing as, you know, the party of the, the centre-right, pro-enterprise, pro-market. Um, it, interestingly, it's also quite statist in that it, it has um, essentially governed over a large extension of the state um, during the pandemic crisis, but to some extent in, in the earlier period um, as well, although it probably doesn't speak as much about that. I think the other thing that... Um, the other and and Sinn Fein then by contrast is is much more left leaning and you know has made a lot of ground on social policy issues particularly housing in the last election. I think there's also a second dimension though on where there are really clear differences between these these parties. Sinn Fein gets a lot of its support from voters who are very anti-system, uh, anti-elite. Uh, they have um, essentially these are what we call populism light voters. They're they're very much characterised by a distrust of the political system. They believe that you know politicians are in it for themselves. They don't care about the people, uh, and they have they tend to have kind of quite simplistic views about how how the nature of politics works. And and in a way, the Fenugreek voter is the is the anti-populist voter. Uh, the Fenugreek voter believes very strongly in the uh, in the system uh, believes that the system can work well for for everybody and and there is that kind of second dimension uh, of of difference between the two political parties in one standing very much for the system and the status quo and, and Sinn Féin very much the anti-system party uh, and again th- that allows them to demonstrate very clear differences between them but it 
does present a challenge, of course, to Sinn Féin, um, should it ever evolve into government, because it becomes much more difficult to be anti-system when you are the system. Uh, but for the time being, there are clear poles of difference or points of difference between these these two political uh, parties. And Fine Gael, for, for much of its history, um, had to, <clears throat> or struggled, um, to define how it was different from its major competitor, Fianna Fáil. Um, there was a lot of kind of open mouths and kind of blank pauses in interviews over the years as, as parties struggled to find things that made these, these two parties different and why you should vote for one rather than the, the other. That's not the case in this kind of new emerging reality. There are very clear differences between these these two uh, political uh, political parties. And to some extent, I think that's where Fianna Fáil um, part of its struggles come from is that it doesn't have this clear identity uh, of where it sits um, in, in this dichotomy around the left and right divide, um, around the kind of, um, certainly this kind of populist, this pro-system, anti-system uh, approach. And I think there's some degree of realisation within Fianna Fáil that this is a problem because you hear from the parliamentary party uh, every week that, um, you know, the party needs to assert itself more, more clearly. But what what we never really get to is in which direction. Um, you know, identities aren't things that you can take down from the shelf and, and sell to voters. You know, they, they need to be uh, a reflection of the core of the party. And I think that's a difficulty for, for Fianna Fáil, but it's one where Fianna Gael and, and Sinn Féin do have the advantages that they do have clear identities and clear positions uh, that they can sell to, to voters. How far they get with them, of course, will be very much shaped by the context of the next election and economic performance, which, which is not really kind of filtering in at the moment, but you know, we're facing into a very different economic reality next year. And I think that will very significantly contribute to the dynamic of, of policy competition between these parties. I, I do wonder how clear, Theresa, the identity which you described, the, the, the Sinn Féin identity is as it gets larger and becomes a bigger tent with a more diverse range of people within it, both within the party and among its voters. I'm not going to get into the whole question of what populism means and whether it's a pejorative phrase and it means different things to different people. But, you know, Ona Bryn, um has described Sinn Féin's approach as left populism, so we should we should take that as face value. And some of the the critiques which you described there um, of of the system as articulated by Sinn Féin in a couple of the things which I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, insiderism as represented by the actions of Leo Varadkar or the appointment of of Supreme Court judges, all that kind of thing. That fits very well and it's it's an easy argument relatively to make in opposition. Um, It comes under huge pressure very fast when you actually, the prospect of of really being in power uh, happens. And even, I mean, I was looking at Kate O'Connell, the Finnegan, um, former Fine Gael TD, having a go at Sinn Féin on, on RT earlier this week. And I thought it was interesting, the kind of arguments which she was making, which I'm guessing some of which might be coming from central office, even in, in Fine Gael, were about things like anti-vaxxer tendencies among, among Sinn Féin candidates, unfortunate or embarrassing things which they had said on social media in the past. Just a general sense that if you kind of dig under the surface, there's a whole range of people ranging from idealistic young people on the left in their 20s who are involved with the LGBT movements to people who are sort of really on the margins of politics and have been brought into Sinn Féin as a whole. The whole thing could kind of blow up in Sinn Féin's face once they have to start making the pragmatic compromises of being in a government, almost certainly in a coalition government? I mean, I, I think most medium to large parties are, are coalitions. You know, they they bring uh, support or draw support from a variety of different groups. I think one interesting, there's been very interesting research done on why Ireland doesn't have a 
significant far right force, um, you know, an anti-immigrant uh, party of the type that you see in, in most other West European countries. And the kind of conclusion from that work has usually suggested that those voters actually vote for Sinn Féin. Although Sinn Féin doesn't actually espouse their views to a great extent, particularly, say, in relation to um, immigration and social social issues. So Sinn Féin does attract support from a group of people um, who have no other home in the political spectrum for their views. But Sinn Féin doesn't actually necessarily represent them them either. But they, they also have a kind of a core of anti-system uh, sentiment. And, and to some extent, that's why they, they drift towards Sinn Féin. So Sh- Sinn Féin does face a difficulty in terms of how it manages that cohort of, of supporters, um, because it needs their support clearly to grow and, and progress on a pathway to, to, to government. But at the same time, it probably sees grave dangers in in giving in or or to be seen to be delivering uh, on those kinds of uh, policies because it it will certainly alienate a significant cohort, particularly of their their younger, more educated uh, voters. And that's a a, a dilemma. It's probably more acute for Sinn Féin, but it's a difficulty that a lot of political parties have had to engage and deal with over the years where you get support from people whose views you don't necessarily want to articulate and amplify uh, within the within the system. And I think we're seeing that playing out to some extent. I mean, the Sinn Féin parliamentary party um, has taken a very positive uh, position on on vaccines. Yet we see in the polls, uh, you know, that Sinn Féin voters are represent a, a very different uh, view on on that and that's a, a tension that the party will have to uh, will have to address and and will have to uh, will have to deal with um we've probably seen some of this you know in, in other political parties over the, the years i think entry traveler views were pretty virulent amongst the supporters of um, both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael for a very long time more recently, neither of those political parties um, will will use that or amplify that feeling and has very much tried to build more tolerance. But but they risk alienating these these voters who have quite hostile, uh, quite hostile views. Now, this is on a much bigger scale for, for Sinn Féin. Uh, but we have seen parties having to deal with with that before, where the views of their supporters are not necessarily aligned at all with where the party sees itself going. But but there are left wing populist parties in other European countries. I mean, Podemos in Spain and Syriza in Greece are the are, are are the most obvious ones. I'm not aware of any um, self identifying left wing nationalist populist parties that have got a lot of traction. Maybe in Catalonia, uh, but I can't think of of anywhere else. A lot of the attacks on Sinn Fein coming from Fine Gael and from other opponents of Sinn Fein has been over the Troubles, its involvement in the Troubles, its view of the Troubles, its history, whether that relationship with the military wing in the North is is over, is dead or buried or not. Um, but I'm not sure how much traction those have. Michael McDowell has a blistering column in the Irish Times this morning about what he sees as the fact that the party is still run by an unelected coterie somewhere in somewhere in a in the Felons Club in West Belfast or wherever it is. Um, that doesn't seem to gain much traction with the electorate as a whole. He was critical of uh, of the fact that, that that part of the party's reality, as he sees it, isn't dug into more. But isn't the reality that that's because people, particularly young people, who among whom Sinn Féin has its highest levels of support, don't seem to care that much about that? 
the demographics are absolutely key to that question. I think it does matter. That question about Sinn Féin's history to, does matter to people who are already familiar with it. And that's one of the reasons why Sinn Féin's support base is so demographically skewed in favour of of uh, of of younger people. One of the interesting things about the events of recent days, um, uh, I found, was that Sinn Féin had much more political trouble in a way with uh, a tweet from Brian Stanley that was, depending on how you looked at it, had may have had uh, homophobic undertones. Uh, then a tweet from Brian Stanley, which... Uh, you know, which endorsed the killing of 18 British soldiers in a bomb in, um, in, 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 in Warren Point. And, uh, you know, the, what I take from that is that far, uh, and I wrote a little bit about this uh, in, in a piece last Saturday, that far an awful lot of Sinn Féin's target voters, not necessarily yet a, a, a firm support base, but for their target voters, in the under 35 cohort that, uh, you know, the Northern conflict is a matter of history, whereas suspected homophobia is very much a, uh, is, is very much a current issue about which many of them would be uh, extremely concerned. So I don't think it's a matter that, that Sinn Féin's history doesn't matter. It just tends to matter an awful lot more for voters that are less likely to vote for Sinn Féin anyway. And uh, and I think that the parties sense this uh, in a way that um, that it's not that they are uh, that they are unconcerned by uh, by by Sinn Féin's uh, historical baggage. It's uh, it's that they don't see a great deal of political purchase uh, for that in the real battlegrounds uh, with Sinn Féin voters. There's also a sense, of course, that Sinn Féin is a little uncomfortable with the historical debate itself as a matter of current politics. So the, cri- the internal criticism of Brian Stanley's uh, Kill Michael Warren Point tweet was not necessarily that he identified a direct line between the War of Independence and the Provisionals campaign, but rather the tone of it and the insensitivity of it, not the substance of the views uh, uh, themselves that he uh, that he expressed, are the beliefs that gave rise to that tweet, because Sinn Féin won't step away from that, won't step away from it ever. I spoke to one Sinn Féin TD about this uh, last week and I asked him, you know, do you think there's a single person in the entire Republican movement that doesn't agree with Brian Stanley's views on this matter? And he said, yeah, of course, probably, uh, probably not. But it is aware that 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 discussion about the provisionals campaign is not really one that it wants to be having in front of those swing voters that it is trying to win because it knows the historical fact that there was little or no public support for uh, the provost campaign, certainly in the South, and that support for it in the North was uh, was very, very much amongst a minority of the people. Those aren't the things it wants to be talking about. 
The things it wants to be talking about are those elements of that left-wing populist program that uh, that Ono Brin uh, spoke uh, spoke about uh, relatively recently. You know that insiders, outsiders, elites versus the uh, the ordinary people, and uh, and you know we see this every. We saw it yesterday with Mary Lou uh, McDonald in the doll. We see it every week with Mary Lou McDonald in the ball, hammering that insiders versus outsiders narrative because they view it as being much more political productive. Um, just and finally on the point about um, you know Saritza Podemos you know the similarities between them and, uh, and Sinn Féin. People in Sinn Féin are very very aware of this because both those parties which came to power on the same sort of left populism uh, a wave of left populism that Sinn Féin hopes to come to power on had very difficult times uh, in government and certainly in the case of Syriza were ultimately judged as having failed by their voters. So there's a great deal of work going on, as I understand it, in Sinn Féin at the moment to ensure that that doesn't happen. And I think one of the interesting trends observing Sinn Féin over the coming years will be to watch them as they try to transition from a, a leftist populist party of opposition to a sort of government in waiting. That's the, I think that's the tightrope that the party will increasingly uh, have to walk. And of course, one of the unusual things about Sinn Féin, Theresa, and one thing that distinguishes it from nearly all political parties is that it does currently exist in two different jurisdictions. And it's actually in, in power, power, albeit power sharing, in one of them. So we do know that it can make pragmatic compromises and uh, of all sorts. And it's been, it's been doing it for years. Yeah, and, and that's actually something of a double-edged sword for, for Sinn Féin, because on, on the one hand, it's very clear that Sinn Féin is capable of pragmatic decision-making once it is in government. Um, it has engaged in programmes of reform and taken policy decisions uh, in Northern Ireland. So on the one hand, it, it can speak to this competence at government um, and uh, the ability of, of poli- uh, senior politicians uh, to, to move in a fairly seamless way into positions of executive authority within political systems. But on the other hand, of course, it has also become a, a point, a pinch point for uh, Sinn Féin, where other parties in the Republic increasingly are pointing to decisions that are being taken in Northern Ireland, uh, which actually are in at odds with the uh, particular policy positions that have been put out by the party uh, in the in the Republic. Um, and Fine Gael, I think, has been particularly aiming to do this. And we've seen a, something of an outbreak of fairly heavy negative campaigning in the last number of, of weeks uh, where Fine Gael in particular is pointing to these inconsistencies. So it, it's positive in terms of being able to present itself as a competent party capable of governing but it does actually, it's not without its difficulties because it does also mean that the party has a record of government that it has to stand over, albeit a constrained government but nevertheless Sinn Féin ministers taking decisions which have particular clear uh, consequences. So it has to defend that. Now, the the two polities have, have been, you know, there hasn't been very much uh, interaction between them. And, you know, for, for many years, we were always told that the one thing that made 
voters in the Republic changed channels was uh, discussions of politics in Northern Ireland. Uh, and even more effective than that was discussions of the European Union. Uh, so it, it remains the case that voters on either side of the border don't know an awful lot about e- each other. So, you know, how effective these these uh, criticisms of, of Sinn Féin will, will be, it remains to be seen. And more generally, the research we have tells us that, that negative campaigning, although billions are spent on it, um, it it's not necessarily something that particularly resonates with voters. And in fact, the balance of probably evidence suggests that it turns voters off and probably more than anything else, it actually discourages some people from actually going out to vote. So there are real dangers there. And if this, the negative campaigning that we've really seen amplify in the last couple of weeks, if that's to continue, that potentially has has downsides for both of the political parties. Yeah, I wonder if that, I wonder if that, that received wisdom about people turning off Northern Ireland and the European Union, which was definitely true. I wonder if, if it is as true as it used to be, uh, particularly in, in the wake of Brexit and stuff. And just looking at some of our own internal analytics, you know, there's quite a lot of appetite for 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 some of those is, issues as well. But let me ask you something, um, Theresa. This may be a slightly awkward question, actually, because it's always a difficult thing for the media to talk about themselves. But if I were a Sinn Féin voter and I looked at the op-ed pages of the national newspapers over the last 10 days or so and the amount of inches and in space that was given to a single tweet by Brian Stanley and, and what it all meant, I might say, and in fact, if you looked at social media, I would say, because they did say at great length, that uh, that the media are in the tank for, uh, if not for Fine Gael, then against Sinn Féin anyway. That the kind of the, the if we, we are entering a new bipolar political reality, that one of those polls, the, the Sinn Féin poll, is drastically under underrepresented in the media. And that that in itself is an example of the way in which elites um, exclude Sinn Féin voters and their views. Well, I, th- I think the first thing is, is the media is not a single thing. Uh, you know, it's, it, not all of, of the outlets uh, take the same editorial line. Um, I think we'd probably say some, some outlets are more critical of Sinn Féin uh, than, uh, than other outlets. Uh, Mary Lou MacDonald made this very point on Monday when she was uh, being interviewed by uh, Claire Byrne. Um, she kind of asserted that uh, th- th- there had been more attention given to this than necessarily uh, was warranted. I mean, I, I think there, first of all, there are broadcasting rules which apply. So, um, you know, representatives of the political parties probably do get a fair crack uh, at the wheel. And I don't think you could say that Sinn Féin public representatives are excluded from debate in any kind of serious way. They're certainly representative, uh, represented in, in a fair and balanced way as required by the broadcasting rules. I think the op-ed pages of the newspapers uh, is a different thing. And uh, again, I'd probably go back to something to do with, with demographic and age. Um, you know, the op-ed writers uh, uh, that feature across our news media perhaps come from a, maybe I might suggest an older and uh, male demographic. And, and many of them, of course, have had lived experience in relation to Sinn Féin that is far more critical. Uh, if we saw more younger uh, contributors to the op-ed pages, we might get a more balanced and, and even. So I think there's there's probably a dynamic. There's certainly an anti-Sinn uh, Féin di- dynamic there, but it, it's not disconnected from all the other things that we've been talking about um, you know, for the last half an hour. Uh, it is connected to the fact that some of those, uh, s- s- some of those op-ed writers are older and, and they have a, a view of Sinn Féin that is informed by their lived experience of the conflict in, in Northern, Northern Ireland. So I, I mean, I, I think there's, there's probably something to be said uh, that uh, Sinn Féin feel that they're, they're on the kind of negative end this week. But I think if you talk to all the political parties, they will be very much of the view that they don't get a fair crack uh, from, from the media. Sinn Féin is, is much more effective in social media, whatever we're talking now about the 
traditional media, but if we move to, to social media, uh, Sinn Féin as a party is much more effective in getting its message across in, in social media. And it has adapted to those platforms in a way that all of the other political parties pretty much continue to, to struggle uh, to, to do. And it, it, the same book, How Ireland Voted, Jane Souter, Kirsty Park have a very interesting chapter in there with lots of data, which just shows how far ahead uh, Sinn Féin is of all the other political parties in terms of getting its message across uh, in social media and in in terms of the way it connected with, uh, with, with voters. So it, it might feel that it has a disadvantage in one p- platform or, or, or another, but, but certainly it's advantaged in other platforms. So it, these are swings and, swings and roundabouts, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it occurs to me, we were discussing the history of Fine Gael a couple of weeks ago, Pat, and uh, a, a major part in that was the rise of Fianna Fáil in the 1920s and early 1930s. And in a way, Facebook and Twitter are to Sinn Féin these days as the Irish press was to, was, was to Fianna Fáil back, back then. But can I just ask you, and we talked about how unpredictable this is going to be over the over the next while, but I mean, realistically, Sinn Féin overperformed in terms of its electoral performance on its poll numbers of a couple of months previously in the most recent election, but it underperformed in terms of its delivery of seats. It seems to me the party can realistically um, have an ambition to get up to 60 seats at the at the next uh, at the next election is that realistic do you think that would be the sort of ballpark that they're their upper end of their ambition yeah 100% that is uh, that's realistic i mean if you look at let's say they're polling at dinner about you know late 20s early 30s at the moment if they get that in a general election then the system should reflect that proportionately and give them a little bit of a uh, give them a little bit of a seat bonus so you're certainly talking in the region of 55 uh, 55 60 seats um uh, so in uh, and in that, let's say our poll numbers on this is a very big jump, of course. But let's say our poll numbers are broadly reflected in uh, at the next general election, where you have those two medium to large size uh, parties in Sinn Fein and Fine Gael, each with uh, you know fifty to sixty seats, that sort of ballpark, which is what they would certainly be. Uh, aiming for uh, if they go into the next general election campaign with the sort of poll numbers that they're showing now. Um, So you'll then have two big parties dominating the next all, but neither of those parties would be within an ass's roar of a doll majority themselves. So they would need to put together a coalition, which is why we go back to the position of Fianna Fáil, which could become pivotal in the construction of the next government. And, uh, you know, while Fine, uh, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin may be the big two after the next election, the decisive one could be Fianna Fáil, which is why the debate that will take place after Michal Martin's leadership, or even if he is still leader in advance of the next election, about that party's attitude to coalition with Sinn Féin. And if you're looking at, you know, Jim O'Callaghan, who is, uh, you know, effectively positioning himself for uh, to compete to be the next leader of uh, Fianna Fáil whenever Michal Martin departs either uh, of his own volition are otherwise, and he's making, Jim O'Callaghan's making noises about not ruling out uh, Sinn Féin uh, as a coalition partner after the next election. So I think that 
debate within Fianna Fáil, notwithstanding everything that we have said about the decreasing importance of, uh, of, of, of Fianna Fáil and the demographic and other trends uh, against which it has to contend. But I think that some very, there will be very important decisions made within Fianna Fáil, which will greatly influence the formation of the next government. Teresa, do you finally, do you, I mean, when you look into your crystal ball, do you see Tonister, Jim O'Callaghan and Taoiseach Mary Lou MacDonald sitting side by side in, in the Dáil? Or do you see more of a sort of a patchwork of a left coalition? I could imagine that someone Sinn Féin would want to get those left-wing parties on side and into the tent rather than outside criticising them from, from, from the opposition benches. Well, I think if Sinn Féin surges to 60 seats the next time around, it will actually take out rather a lot of those left-leaning um, parties. Um, and actually, Michael Gallagher and Trinity has, has estimated that they could have gotten up to um, as many as 14 additional seats had candidate selection worked out differently and the votes fallen just marginally uh, in different ways. So, But a lot of that additional gain for Sinn Féin would have come on the back of uh, you know, people before profit um, and socialist party party TDs. So, if we're going to see a, a surging Sinn Fein the next time around, and I, I certainly think that's within uh, reason based on the figures we have in front of us, it, it's going to actually have consequences for a lot of those uh, political parties. So, there's going to be there are going to be fewer allies on the left of the the spectrum. So, then you will be looking at potentially um, the Labour Party. Social Democrats, depending on how how well they they do the next time around, and, and questions about whether or not they would be interested in in governing with uh, governing with Sinn Fein, um, the the moderate left parties hold more realistic prospect of a kind of a stable government as well, because if you go to the far left, uh, I mean those those parties on on the left of the very significant left of the the spectrum, I mean their vision of, of how the system should operate is actually even now quite largely at odds with how Sinn Fein. Um, um, you know, would like to, to govern. So I think it would be difficult to form any agreement with them, but I think it's, it's unlikely that they'll be there. Um, so that, that really leaves just this question of, of, you know, can Sinn Féin form a government with Fianna Fáil or, or can Sinn Féin uh, form a, a government with the smaller remaining uh, centre-left political parties in, in, the, uh, in the spectrum? There are big questions there for Fianna Fáil in, in terms of what the potential consequences for the party would be if it were to uh, go into government. Um, I think partly because of the pandemic and the, the backdrop of, to the formation of the current government, we didn't go into the the depths of the kind of significance of Fine Gael and, and uh, Fianna Fáil coalescing together. I think there are probably even bigger questions for Fianna Fáil if it were to, to look at coalescing with, with Sinn Féin, because Fianna Fáil certainly has been losing quite a lot of its voters to Sinn Féin. I mean, they are swimming in the same pool. Um, and, you know, the potential long-term uh, prospects for Fianna Fáil would kind of significantly come into question because the history of coalition in Ireland tends to be that the smaller political party uh, suffers as a consequence of coalition. Now, you have to be very careful about writing off Fianna Fáil. This is one of the most enduring political movements, uh, you know, in the democratic world for the last hundred years. But nevertheless, it, it, it is moving more and more to a kind of a perilous position in terms of its its long-term future. I think government of Sinn Féin would, would really pose significant questions for them. But the internal leadership will, will, uh, will say a lot. And it's very hard to see how Micheál Martin would still be in situ uh, by the time we get to the to the next general election, particularly if the opinion polls for Fianna Fáil continue and that kind of fairly bumpy way that they are at the moment. 
Very interesting indeed. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Teresa and Pat. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. If you do want to get in touch with us, we are always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm-hmm.